0: Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Are you there? Hello, I'm here. How
1: are you? I'm good. Hang on. I need to shut my door and tell my family to shut up.
0: (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Welcome back. (laughs) I totally think that all of that silence should be the beginning of the show. Like you say in just a minute, and then nothing. I <laughs> could just be the show. <laughs> it might be. I'm
1: I'm a little exhausted this morning. It's in keeping with my theory of I should talk less.
0: <laughs> oh, no. It was just funny whenever uh, my assistant was doing the transcript of the podcast, and it was one that you and Anna were on, and she's like, It's 913 words. It's a whole page. (laughs) I said, well, it was probably important. (laughs) (laughs) But I still had to give you a hard time.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. I don't know what you expected when we we were like, we're going to start a podcast. It's like, have you not met me? Did you not know what you were getting into? (laughs) (laughs) It's a podcast. We're supposed to talk. That's the point. Right. I think the theory being that we would all talk some equivalent amount. That hasn't happened, though.
0: Well, why would I do that? You can do all the heavy lifting and I can just be quiet. Then if you say something wrong, I can be like, that was Chris, not me. (laughs) Uh, So how's your week been going? Oh, I'm fine.
1: (laughs) It's the summer. I don't know. The summer is really hard. Well, the summer has been harder than ever before just because of working remote. And when I started, when I was working at LaTote last year, that was the first time I'd done 100% remote all the time. Mm -hmm. And for the summer, when my kids were home, I had an office, so I would go downtown and go work out of an office. And then it got to be kind of cost prohibitive. And so I was like, I'm spending a lot of money on this office. I don't need to do this anymore. So that just happened to coincide with my daughter going back to school and my son going back to school. So it wasn't planned. I didn't even think that part of it through, but that just sort of happened. But now I'm working from home still and it's summer and not only are the kids home, but they're older and they're more engaged and they're like, wanting to do more stuff. And it's just, it's been tough. It's been a tough transition. We have not settled into a schedule yet. It's been a couple of weeks now. So especially with starting a new job, it's been tough to figure out how to get the most work done and how to find productive times in the day and that kind of stuff.
0: I find that same thing with new clients. Anytime you have a new job, there's this pressure to perform that after people know you and know what you can do, you don't feel so bad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then having the kids, that's what I rent an office about three miles from my house because of that. And there've been a few times I'm snowed in and the kids are snowed in. And I have to put very strict boundaries and say like, when this door is closed, dad's not home. He's at the office and you can't come in there, but then I can hear them. And if they start to argue and My wife's not fast enough to get to him like she's in the shower. Then I feel like I need to run out there and take care of it. And then I I also can't go to the kitchen without spending 30 minutes there because I'm like, oh, I'll just go ahead and wash these dishes real quick.
1: Yeah, that's the other thing is I'll hear the unspoken cry for help. That is my wife clearly at her wits end with this three-year-old and this five-year-old yelling at each other. and. I can't help but just be like, well, I got to go engage. Like, I've got to go at least back her up because this is this is getting out of hand. And, you know, that happens a non-trivial amount of times throughout the day. Yeah. It's been an interesting transition.
0: Welcome to remote work and parenting with Chris and Amos.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hashtag my elixir status. Nice. (laughs) Nice.
0: I have a problem with the summertime too, because the office I rent, you know, it's super cheap. So that's awesome. comes with internet. And the internet that I get for free is only $30 less than what I pay for the office. But that's because everybody in the office building uses it. But I use it way more than anybody. They're like checking Facebook once in a while. But I have no windows. Mm. So I know like outside, I'm like, oh, I know it's a nice day today. And I just wish i had a window so i could look outside and then in the winter time i get to work it's dark and i leave and it's dark and i've never seen the sun so try to realize that it's lunchtime and go outside and and that really really helps get me reengaged and sometimes in the summer i'll run home have lunch with my kids that helps me feel a little better about running away from them all the time (laughs) right
1: yeah i know it's amazing the difference just going outside and taking a walk can do for my day. And I try to spend a pretty healthy amount of time outside. I'll either go like chill in my hammock and I'll like think from there, or I'll work and code from there. But even just getting outside to go take a walk can can actually just change the way that I look at my day. It's kind of remarkable, really. Yeah. You should invest in one of those happiness sun lamp things that are only you know a couple hundred dollars on Amazon <laughs> in order to blast you with lumens. <laughs> <laughs> to make you happy. Hang on, let me let me see here. You're like you gotta look one up.
0: <laughs> I'm fine. I'm gonna find
1: you one. Happiness lamp. All right, here we go.
0: I looked at some of those for waking up for a while. I yeah, I have a hard time waking up, and then I found out you know if I eat healthy and go to bed at the right time, I don't have a hard time waking up at all. <laughs> I, I don't need a lamp. I just need to be healthy. Here we go. The Verilux Happy
1: Light, full size, 10,000 lux light la- therapy energy lamp. Verilux Inc. It's got four and a half stars. So how much is it? It's only a hundred dollars. Nah. Um, <laughs> no. we've, we've gone too far. Science has gone too far. I got to
0: go spend a hundred dollars this weekend on a garbage disposal. Cause ours is leaking. So nice. So that, sorry, garbage disposal or lamp. I'm going to have to go with garbage disposal. <laughs> That and my daughter broke her arm on Monday.
1: Oh, I know. That's so sad. You sent me the x-ray and it's just horrifying.
0: <laughs> it's like, that's like some eldritch nonsense. It's amazing. I tried to talk her into letting me take a picture of it. I was like, you want a picture of this for later? Like before they set it and put it in the cast. And she's like, no, no, don't take a picture. I don't want to see it it's like okay fine and then her x-rays she didn't want to see until after they straightened her arm she's like no don't show it to me i was like honey your arm looks like a snake it's super cool (laughs) (laughs)
1: it's at a very precarious angle like it is at a very 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 interesting angle here i
0: called my wife and I i said hey uh i'm at the piano teacher's house and miriam just broke her arm and my wife's like how do you know it's broke i was like oh it's broke. That's all I could say. <laughs> and I think she wondered why my daughter wasn't screaming in the background possibly, but she didn't cry at all. It was, it was pretty amazing. Was it just shock? I don't know. I think it's just kind of her. She's not a big cry or anything. She just kept it together. The biggest gripe and complaint she had was after we were at the hospital, she just wanted to sleep. Even on the way to the hospital, she just wanted to sleep. She's like, I'm tired now. And she's like, mom, dad, grandma, because grandma came to be silent. I need to sleep silent. (laughs) Wow. I'm like, all right, boss, whatever you say,
1: look, you're the one whose arm is poking out at 90 degrees. So you, you make the call.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. So 10 minutes in, we've talked about working at home. I've kind of gotten the BS and out of the way. So I have some other horror stories. So my daughter was pretty easy, actually, other than being up really late. Mm -hmm. But work, on the other hand, has been a little tough. I've been working on an email system that emails out alarms and I put it all together, tested it, ran it locally. It works. Don't really have integration level tests on it. Just some small like this function translates this data test and push it. And some other people push their changes and QA gets it and they send it back the data format changed of how they do a recipient. So now I fix that, push it back. Then it's messed up again. Somebody changed. We have this called a data dictionary file that talks about how to process some of the data and where it's coming from. And it's actually generates code. Well, somebody changed that file. So it quit calling the file that I had expected to be called whenever they changed. Um, it was an accidental change too, but because there was no integration level tests for this email feature that didn't get caught. So uh, integration tests, I think dialyzer could have done some good there. Cause it could have said, Hey, this state is not right anymore. So I guess when you have a pretty complex project that's been around a while, how do you go adding dialyzer to it without having dialyzer just hate you for the next six months while you add all the specs in?
1: Oh boy. I don't know. I've definitely tried to add dialyzer after the fact. And it's a lot of work. It's often a lot of work, not because of things that you've done in your code. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel like most of the things that I end up going and trying to fix are dependencies. And the canonical example for me is depending on what version of Phoenix and what version of Elixir and what version of Dialyzer, et cetera, Like all these things. For a while, you would run Dialyzer against your Phoenix app. And depending on how you had it set up in your dependencies, it would start throwing a bunch of no local returns from all of the like template stuff. You know, have you experienced this?
0: Yeah, and I've used Dialyzer on other projects that were using it from the beginning. And that was that was pretty easy and beautiful. But yeah, I've tried to add it. And I put specs in the code, even though we're not using Dialyzer. Most of the time, because we're not using Dialyzer, I back off a little bit. A lot of times, actually, when I don't use it, it's because I haven't, don't have a good grasp on what the entire system coming in is. I have like a partial idea and I'm afraid to lie to somebody with the spec and say it, it only deals with these two things when actually it might get these other three things that I don't know about.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's funny when you see that kind of stuff in the code. I've definitely seen places in different code bases that have specs that are more... They're, they're more based on hope than they are based on reality. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> like some code I've written.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The way that you find this stuff, and I don't remember if the, I always get the different wrappers confused around dialyzer, but I think die elixir with a Y is the most common one. Is that the one you use? Uh, yeah. I'm trying to remember now if that one runs with the overspec flag on by default or not, but the overspec flag for dialyzer is really helpful for that stuff. Because it'll actually tell you when you've overspecified a
0: function. What?
1: Yeah, it'll it'll like actually say like your success type is actually any here, but you're saying that it should be a string, and you've not done anything that actually that actually forces that to be a string.
0: Oh, that's pretty cool.
1: One of the things that you don't think about is uh, let's say like you have function foo, and function foo you believe should take strings, right? Function foo is called by function bar, and you pass arguments into function bar, and then it passes it down into function foo. Is this all clear as mud so far? Yeah. Cool. And you're like, okay, these should be strings. Well, if you want function foo to accept a string, if you want to spec it like that, at some point, one of those two functions needs to define a guard clause that is binary or else the actual success type is any still. There's nothing that forces that to be the case until you actually limit the amount of things that you can pass into that
0: function. And the overspec flag will like find that kind of stuff for you. Nice. So it takes a little more of that, what I call hopeful specking out of it, right? mm mm-hmm. That... At the edge of my system, I've said that this thing coming in should be a string, but it's if I don't have a guard clause there, somebody could pass me something else, and I wouldn't be any the wiser till it was too late.
1: I'm not sure what dialyzer would have done for your problem because your problem is based on the kind of data that you're passing through the system, right? Yeah, yeah,, and realistically, that's more of a business logic than it
0: is types. I don't know. you'd be you you'd know more than me. So what I had come in um, originally was an atom and then they changed it to a tuple. So originally, and and that was on my suggestion that we should look at changing it, but then then they just did it (laughs) after I had written for the old way. So I got in there and the data would have like, it was an atom, but it would be, I think it was an atom. Might've just been a string. They kind of conflate the two of them a lot. Um, They, they being me too, the project in general. So it's, it's had like a word followed by a number. And that number was like an index into an et's table. And the word was like a key to use to get into the et's table. So I had to split it apart and get it. It was like a sheepman's foreign reference. I see. Sure. And I told him, change it to a tuple with the, with an atom at the beginning. And then a number is the second argument so that there wouldn't be that parsing everywhere in the code. And they're like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. Don't know why we didn't think of that. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I just thought, why am I parsing this? And, and so that's what changed. So I think if I was saying it should have been a string or an atom or whatever, and it was, they were sending a tuple, hopefully dialyzer would have noticed that.
1: Yeah. I think, I think that sounds like the kind of thing that dialyzer probably would have caught. And, probably saved you a little bit of aggravation there. Uh, and I mean, to to your original question of how do you add Dialyzer to a project? Man, I don't know, Like it, that one's tough because Dialyzer is, it's a very, very useful tool and I think most people, I think realistically we should all be using it for the most part. I mean, I think it, it hits the sweet spot when it comes to types for me. I'm a big Haskell fan and I'm a big Rust fan and that kind of stuff, but I also, I'm of the opinion that types only do so much <laughs> for you They solve a class of problems that I'm not overly concerned about solving that often. And they solve a class of problems that are more useful to solve when you have a team of some arbitrary size that, you know, I couldn't begin to quantify because at the end of the day, I'm not an academic. Yeah. But I I do think they're a good way to communicate. They're a good way to solve those kinds of problems. And I think Dialyzer actually hits the sweet spot for me of like. We're not actually gonna limit your ability to just get stuff done. We're only gonna tell you when things are truly, truly wrong, when we can prove that they're wrong. And I think that that's basically where I wanna be with that kind of stuff. I think that's, that's the right place to be. And people right now are super enamored with type systems and how types can like solve your problems and that kind of stuff. And, and I think that's like fascinating, but I'm just not sold on that. As solving the class of problems that I'm interested in solving. Just generally, because I think the most interesting problems have to do are not, you know, oh, I got the type signature for this wrong and or uh, little things like, oh, I typoed this and my type system told me or it made IntelliSense better. Like, those are not problems that I'm concerned with in any way. And I think the majority of the time, real problems in real systems have more to do with catastrophic failures that you could never have a type system to support. I won't say never. I mean, somebody will come up with a way, and 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 session types are definitely like a step in that direction. But but generally speaking, you know, you the way you actually defend against failure is you have this this whole cascading effect of of multiple services all going down, and somebody deleting a file at just the wrong time, and then and the next thing you know, your whole site goes offline or whatever. Uh, and types don't necessarily help you with that right now. Uh, and those are more the problems that I'm interested in solving. But just generally, adding dialyzer after the fact. I mean, I think you could just ignore stuff for the most part just like do it run it in ci or like have a separate ci build or something like that that will tell you if you're getting closer maybe yeah if you're getting fewer errors but just don't have it block your build or else you're going to be in the camp of well now we've got to go fix all of it and probably some some of our dependencies because you can't guarantee that any of the dependencies that you've pulled in ran dialyzer on their projects and even if they did sometimes dialyzer doesn't find problems until you actually use that dependency that's true does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think I think it would be nice if somehow the output could say so much of this is right and this percent is wrong or broken mm-hmm. or or number of errors. I don't think it does from what I remember. I don't know. I didn't really concentrate on whether there was a number. I just concentrated on what does this output mean, which was that's its own bag of worms. Then you you could also set your build up to say, "Hey, it's got to be better than this amount until you get there." And then you up that until finally you're out, because otherwise, you know, if it's this is project's been around a while, if we get a thousand lines of output, I'm not going to know if I add one more. <laughs> right. I think generally in
1: engineering, especially with a team of sufficient size where that size is in pick your number, uh, maybe it's size of one. There's there's always these things that we do that we consider to be best practices to like build good software or something like that. And by and large, those are things that we adopt ad hoc and then apply to our software development after the fact, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so something like running dialyzer, right? Like right now, if you were to run dialyzer, it would just be you doing it on your local branches. And there's no way that you can enforce anybody else does that. And my anecdotal evidence is basically that entropy will win out and by and large, people just won't do that stuff because... Best practices are like billboards or like warning labels on things. Everybody looks at a warning label and then they go, "Well, that warning label is not for me. That's for the stupid people. <laughs> I'm smart. I I know more than that warning label, and I'm not going to get hurt. And that's how people get hurt. And I think that's true for best practices. Like everybody knows them. You know, even if you become a a quote unquote software craftsman or whatever, like <laughs> whatever you, whatever it is that people are into these days you learn all these best practices. And then of course, once you've learned them all, it sort of gives you this confidence to say, well, I know more than that thing. I don't need to do this right now. It's not important. And that's of course, when you get bitten by this kind of stuff. So I think whatever, you, whenever you do this, these sorts of things, you have to enforce them at some sort of, you, you can't just enforce them by convention. You have to actually enforce them by some sort of rule. Yeah. And I don't know how you would
0: go about doing that correctly. Uh, yeah, and you have to automate that rule because I've found on many projects that the team makes rule and even after they all agree on it, there will be a large percentage that won't follow that rule. <laughs> right. I see it a lot around in multiple teams that I've worked with, uh, PRs. The, the team will say, hey, you need to have X number of approvers on a PR. Mm-hmm. And then people put the PR up and either they don't get up to X, number of approvers or they don't get any they like put the pr out there and then merge it and it's like well you can look at the pr but i needed it for my next step so i merged it
1: right or the one that i hear all the time which is Hilariously ironic to me is, oh, we really needed to get this done. It was an emergency. And it, that's clearly the best time to throw out all your best practices and rubric is when there's an emergency. It's definitely the time to stop thinking and start and stop going through the process is when there's an emergency. That's what doctors do, after all. Like if there's an emergency in the operating room, they immediately are like, oh no, something's gone wrong. I need to throw out all my years of training and just go off the cuff. Right.
0: I'm not washing my hands. There's a guy dying in there. I just got to get to work. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly.
0: How well, that is a grand analogy
1: <laughs> it shows the safety of the issue i think i stole that from someone but i don't remember who i stole it from
0: yeah well that's good whoever it is thank you yeah
1: whoever that was i mean if you don't come forward i'm gonna
0: take credit for it so <laughs> be warned and then you should follow that up with i work better under pressure it's okay yeah that's that's one of my favorites too why are you putting that off because they work better under pressure <laughs> <laughs> so i've dabbled in haskell and types for a long time i was i really hated types i thought and then i just found out i really don't like the way java does typing the it just doesn't match with me i don't know some people that might be the best thing for them but for me it was it just made me angry all the time so in playing in haskell haskell's type system is obviously way more powerful than Dialyxer in in what you can even specify so what are some of the differences that you see between Haskell type, not not the inference part, but like when you're declaring like what is possible to declare and what you can't in Dialyzer for people that might be coming over to Elixir that have done some Haskell?
1: Right. So one thing that I wanted to key on that you said that was it's an important term was powerful. And I think that is accurate in and uh, in as much as if we're talking about power from the point of view of computation and not from sort of an ad, a more ad hoc definition of the word powerful. So a little bit, I don't want to like split hairs, but it's a little bit the difference of like simple versus easy, right? You know, the the idea that simple just means thing like one thing versus easy, which is close at hand. Uh, Powerful, like, I think you're right uh, in the sense that Haskell's type system is more powerful in a actual computational sense. That's sort of not debatable, but I think there's, there's a difference too between powerful and useful.
0: And when you said that, it made me think about these things. Uh, So I was, I was wanted to like bring that up. I can tell you what I was thinking when I said powerful was that now I got to, I got to figure out a way to explain this, like allows you to put tighter constraints on the types and uh, yeah, maybe that's as far as I can get in my mind. I mean,
1: I think that's accurate. So Haskell's type system and in fact, like the majority of type systems type algebras that are used in in languages like Haskell. So that's like the entire ML family of languages. It's Java, it's C-sharp, those sorts of things. They're all based on on, on an actual algebra and the algebra is, is Hindley-Milner type systems um, by and large. That's like where they all sort of, that's like where the root of a lot of this stuff comes from. And the key point in those type systems is that you start from a basic logical primitive, which is that the thing that, like you start with none none is is or false or whatever you start with like this cannot type check and then what you do is you look through the rest of the i'm like hand waving over this definition by the way this is not rigorous (laughs) you but you start with none and then you you look through the code and you build up the type systems and then as long as you never say as long as you don't end up with none at the end everything type checked does that make sense So like you layer on all these things and you layer on types on top of none. And as long as you don't get none, everything type checks out and everything works great. Dialyzer and success types generally do the opposite. They start from any and they're permissive. And they basically say everything is any. And then we traverse backwards to try to like find types that don't work out. And if we type find types that don't work out then we throw an error but if we can't do that well everything is any and so it works out i think that's where dialyzer is the most useful is because it'll only warn you if it can prove that something is wrong if it can actually prove that something is wrong and everything else it's permissive about
0: the other way, I forget what you call it, but the, the, where you start with none. So since, since when you start with any and you put things together, then it only tells you if something is for sure wrong. So if dialester comes back and tells you that something isn't right, something really isn't right. Yes. But if another type system tells you that the other type system for starting at none, does that mean that it might be wrong? I mean, for sure, if you fix it, it's going to be okay but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong.
1: This gets into the history of why why Dialyzer was created and how it was created and when it was created. Thank you, Costas. Thank you, Costas. <laughs> but you know there was there was multiple attempts to add a type system, a type algebra to to Erlang, and sort of the the actually I'm forgetting the the original history here, but I don't think it was the first attempt, but it was sort of the the first major attempt was actually done by Wadler, who was um, influential in Haskell and a bunch of other things, really important stuff. So he he tried to write a type algebra for Erlang, I think, with some other folks, and they got a decent way into it, but it turns out that it, Erlang was already around. It was already being used in industry. In fact, that's like one of the reasons they were probably trying to write a type algebra for it, because it was just enough of a functional language I mean, it's such a weird mongrel of a language just generally, but it's it was just enough of a functional language that functional programming academics could sort of latch onto it and then do research for it. And they could sort of say, look, we have a functional language in industry being used. Um, so while they attempted to add a type system around it and they got a decent way in, but it turns out it was really hard to write types around all of the different concurrency stuff and all the different side effects. I mean, it was like really hard to build a type system to do that coupled with the fact that it, you would effectively have to force everybody who was writing Erlang to change the way they were writing Erlang, right? You'd have to basically say, well, now you have to adopt this brand new way of, of writing Erlang code. And for people in industry, it's just like, well, we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna change the way that we write this code because we know this code works. We know it works in production right now. It's running in production and it's working. You can't come in here and tell me that like, just cause your type algebra says it's not working, I have empirical proof that says that it does. And it's working right there. And I'm not going to change the way that I write Erlang code just to suit your type algebra that was sort of the, the context of all of uh, of that. And that's where Costas kind of came in and said, well, we need to approach the problem differently. And we need to approach the problem from the point of view of adoption. And how do we get people to adopt it? Well, the way we get people to adopt it is to say you don't actually have to change the way that you write code. And one of the ways that they did that is they basically started from the assumption that people's code that was running in production was right, it was correct. And so it only needed to inform people when stuff was wrong. And I actually think that that's a very useful concept, just generally. And I mean, it's we see that happening right now in the javascript world flow and typescript both took those same approaches to how they could be adopted you know they did the whole gradual typing thing and it's like that's just that's a that's a furtherance of the success typing stuff you know it's
0: is elm the opposite side of that is elm more like haskell yes yeah okay okay i've i've kind of looked into all that but i haven't touched it very much
1: yeah I've used flow before. It's like a pretty good type algebra. I know a bunch of people who are really into TypeScript. TypeScript, it seems like probably has longer legs. I don't know. I don't do front end at all.
0: I hear TypeScript everywhere.
1: Yeah, I hear that word a lot. And I mean, that's the thing is like, if you want your thing to get adopted, if you want your type algebra to get adopted, it has to come alongside the existing ecosystem and start to just sort of gradually improve the situation. And, and that's the same sort of thing. And I actually tend to find those things are just more useful generally. That's not true across the board, but you know types help you program in the small and they don't help you program in the large. And I, I'm just more concerned typically about programming in the large than I am about programming in the small. Ultimately, I need to get the bigger problem
0: solved. Is that that where you're coming from?
1: Yeah. Or just there's different ways of thinking through the overall system and and thinking through like, how does this affect the business? How does this affect this feature? How's this feature going to affect the system? You know, how am am I delivering the feature correctly? Is this and can we prove that this is correct from the point of view of systems thinking? Like, can we prove that this isn't going to have bottlenecks or this isn't going to bog down the overall system or isn't going to cause
0: a cascading failure? That sort of stuff. So with that in mind, I've seen a lot over the years more on like the Haskell side but I hear people talking about it in the elixir community a little bit, kind of like backroom talk, not standing up at the conference talk. So I guess a little outlaw talk about denotational design and, and so writing spec first and I've done it in the small and, and found it to be beneficial in getting me to think through what was actually going on. And I think caused me, I don't know if it saved me time. It probably saved me some bugs, because of just the amount of thinking that I did before I did a lot of typing. But what are your feelings on, well, maybe we should define denotational design. Yes, please. So denotational design is where you design your system up front with specs, all of the specs for whatever feature you're doing before you ever actually write any functions. So you, you see this type goes into this function and this is its return and then you say well okay now if I have this let's say you're doing a, um, a bank You might have a deposit that takes an account and an amount and returns a new uh, account or something like that. And you set up your system kind of looking at types first, I guess more of a functional mathematical type design. You're looking at the flow of the data and how that data is going to change over time. And with that, this is where I was getting earlier with the powerful Haskell type system is that a lot of times there's some extra things that you can put into your type signature that gives a little more information about what's going on than you can in Elixir. But using dialyzer, do you think that that is feasible? Is there something good behind that? Or is it just the fact that you're thinking a little bit more? Have you ever done it? Maybe we'll start there. I
1: don't think I've ever done that in any sort of formal, in any sort of formal sense, where I could have told you that that's what I was doing when I was doing it. I think that there's only good that can come from more systems thinking in terms of inputs, outputs, what are the boundaries of this thing that I'm building? whether or not that thing is actually a collaboration of 50 things inside of it. You know, at some point there's input coming in and there's output going out. And where do those things go and how do they get transformed? I think there is only good that will come from that sort of design process. But as far as the types go, I think I take it slightly different. I don't know. I mean, My feelings on it are very complicated. So much of it, it has to do with your team, where your team is at, what your team is ready for. Or do you need the sort of guiding hands around your team from a purely ideological standpoint? I don't find this is this is a great I mean, these are great. This is a great question. I think about things moving through the system in terms of values. With that, I mean, you have pieces of data, you have pieces of data that move through the system. And that data comes from somewhere and it and it has some sort of provenance and it has some sort of attributes attached to it. But what makes the data interesting is the data itself. Right. It's the the, the actual value of the data is what makes the data interesting. And I think from the point of view of building systems from a practical stance, the fact is, is you, you only design the system up front once before you get to build anything. And most projects are not Greenfield. And most projects spend more time in production and spend more time in in refactoring than they do as a greenfield project with no code. That's not to say that the design process is bad, just that when I look at design, I tend to think of ways that we can allow for expansion and allow for change. And I think types, by their very definition, sort of limit your ability to expand and limit your ability to change. And they don't convey anything about the values themselves. So for instance, like, let's say I have a user and I'm going to have... And I have a user ADT or I have a user, a user data constructor in Haskell or something like that. Right. And it's and it's user. And then we're going to store their age going to store their name, their email and their Twitter handle. Right. And so it's user int string string string. That's the type signature for a user. Well, that doesn't tell you anything about the user. That doesn't tell you anything useful about like the type is just it doesn't convey anything important about what it means to be a user. The value, the actual piece of data is what conveys the value of a user. And so I just tend to think about ways of structuring systems so that you can accommodate for that sort of schema growth, for that sort of change, and to to accommodate new features and those sorts of things. Because of that, I'm more inclined. I don't think about things as in terms of, of types in the traditional sense because of that, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, I think so. It's a little bit to digest. It makes sense to me. I, I feel that way about types too. About them, they carry some information, but they don't carry necessarily the important information that you need all the time. And you could do like type aliases and stuff, so they could make one of those strings say "username," but it's still a string. And that's where when you say something is a username and and alias it in Haskell, does it then check later that you're actually using the version that was aliased, or does it just no longer care? <laughs> Well, I
1: mean, so part of it is that, I mean, as long as you're passing strings in there for emails, then, then it's fine. It's, it passes. Like, even if you if you do a type alias that's email is string and you, and you save a string or whatever, it's like, that's fine. It all type checks and that's all great. That doesn't convey anything about what that piece of data means to be an email. It doesn't tell you anything about it. There's no interesting pieces of information other than the data itself about what it means to be an email. And by and large, that's all going to come from the runtime. That's runtime logic, at which point your types don't matter and your types don't
0: exist anymore. If you have to check the format of an email.
1: Yeah, what you actually care about is the actual runtime business logic of the stuff. It's such a subtle thing. I mean, it's such a subtle difference in the way of looking at programs. But to me, I think that's why as interesting as Haskell is to me and and as cool as Rust is, like I still love those languages. I use Haskell as my prototyping language for a lot of problems. If I've got really hard problems, Haskell is the language I use to prototype it because I can express my problem in simpler stuff. But from the point of view of running a system in production, I just lean a lot more towards the idea that what you do not want is things that limit your ability to extend and grow your system from a purely ideological standpoint. I mean, all this goes out the window when you're confronted with the real world of I need to train a team of human beings, all of which have varying skill levels, none of which work in the same room and don't collaborate together on a regular basis. Like, how do you make all those things work? And then and I get it and I get, uh, you know, types do help you in that case, because that's a small problem. That's a, that's a programming in the small problem to avoid those like sort of basic,
0: basic mistakes. Right. you can have a new per- new person come in and they don't have to learn the system if they know what the type of the small area is on a bigger system with no types they might have to go up a few levels before they actually figure out what's going on or what they're what data they're getting maybe they don't really need to know what's going on they just need to know what type of data
1: and maybe the problems that your programmers are solving on your team right now maybe the the problems that you're facing are problems of programming in the small I keep using the term small and big. That's not meant to deride the those kinds of problems. It's just meant to sort of say like maybe you know to define those things. and maybe that's exactly what your team needs at that moment. In which case, it's a good tool. Reach for it. Use it. Do whatever it takes to
0: help build better software. That's really the key. And build yourself better so that tomorrow you can build better software than today. <laughs> that's one of my most important things. If I don't go through the day and feel like I learned something, I feel like I'm in the wrong job. I think every day we should get a little better. I should look at code I wrote last week and think, who the heck wrote that? <laughs> <laughs> that that's my goal in life. You had another point, which I think is,
1: is interesting, and I want to get your opinion on it, which is... Um, you were saying one of the things that inhibited your ability to get this stuff done or like caused problems was this lack of integration level testing. So by that, I, I assume that you do have unit level testing just because of the way you phrase that or you have some testing, but you don't have this like full system collaboration stuff. And I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on it, because I think I have anecdotal experience and I have my own thoughts on the quote unquote testing pyramid and the kinds of tests that you should be writing and the
0: amount of them. Mm hmm. But I want to know what you have to say about that. So I find it really hard to write integration tests on projects that have been around a long time and haven't had anything set up for it. So maybe that's a little different topic, I guess. I really like integration tests mainly for happy path and maybe like one failure path, right? Like, so if I'm going to have an integration test and let's say for this email, somebody has to put it, register an email address, I might test an email address with a, an at symbol in it, and then somebody mm-hmm. tries to put one without an at symbol. That would be like probably the only error case, even though there are lots more ways to mess up an email address. I will probably only test one error path and kind mm-hmm. of one happy path and then mainly use unit tests from there on out. I guess the big reason that I've run into that is that I've seen lots of integration tests that have done very little. In the long run, and and take a lot of time to run. So I'm I'm looking at the investment more than anything. Like, is this mm-hmm. worth my test suite running for two days to to find a bug that if I had just done the happy path, it might find, or just done one failure path, it might find. Mm-hmm. But I don't try to do exhaustive integration tests. Now I have thought about using maybe Wallaby with something like proper mm, mm-hmm. um, to to do yes. stateful testing from a very top level. But again, on a system that already exists, just getting it set up could be weeks worth of work, depending on how the, how the system is set up and how quickly that system is changing at the time. That's the other thing that I run into with integration level testing is... If you're quickly prototyping on a system and Mm -hmm. maybe it's changing frequently, that at least, or an area of the system is changing a lot, then I try to really minimize how many I'm putting in there because they just get super frustrating to change constantly. But I also try to write my integration tests at a level that maybe the steps inside the integration test I have to change, but the integration test itself, the wording, whenever you're reading it, is not Mm -hmm. as verbose so I'll create a method that says login, and let's say you're using Wallaby because it's a, a web app, that login step will do the fill-in username, fill-in password, and later we say, we're going to use OAuth, so we're going to get rid of this username password. Well, login, that, that function, what's going into it probably doesn't need to change. It's just the underlying part of that step. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because if you don't, then people start putting username and password in every single file and those right. steps to fill it out. And then it it's very painful. So I think I I like testing at all levels. I integration test less, and this is really long-winded. But ultimately, I think that you your testing code needs attention just like your regular code. You need to refactor it. You need to look mm-hmm. for duplication. But you can't be... Too rigorous in it. It's just like you can't in a regular app because if you do too much refactoring, a lot of times you can get to a place where it's really hard to follow and really hard to see what's going on. And especially in testing, I think it's super important to be able to see this is how I would reproduce it from the front end myself. Mm-hmm. So refactor your tests. That's what I'm saying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree with that. I saw so many test suites, especially when I was doing a lot more consulting, that yeah, we're in varying levels of needed to be refactored. And I think people treat tests as this sort of, they don't treat them like real code. <laughs> they don't they don't think that they can write real code for them. Because if that makes any sense, like people don't do the kinds of like decoupling and, and that sort of stuff that they would normally do left to their own devices when writing something else. And they don't apply those same practices to writing tests, which is really Kind of a fascinating mental thing, I think. By and large, and that's not maybe true for everybody, but, it, but I think you know, just generally. I have a leading question because I, I'm, because I, I have other follow-up to this, but I want—I'm very curious to see what you think about this. What would you say the point of testing is? Like in a sense of, uh, some people talk about testing because it provides design. You know, that's the whole—that was literally the entire point of this whole TDD thing. And some people write tests because it ensures some level of correctness for some definition of correct. Some people do it to, like, protect from regressions and that kind of stuff. Like, why do you write tests? Yes. All all of it? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, all of it. If If you had to weight them, you know what I mean? Like, most important to least important. Oh, man, that's really hard. I, like, oh, man. You can assign, okay, you can assign a value between one and three, to each to to the different aspects of of testing okay. and they can have they
0: can share they can share them can you can you go back back through the aspects just you you name an aspect and I'll give you a number and maybe a reason why uh design design one being the lowest three being the best sure okay 2.75 no <laughs> okay fair well, I didn't realize we were going to use
1: floating point but that's fine I really hope we don't get rounding errors Two two is good.
0: Well, I I think that, uh, especially if you're doing TDD type testing, it really helps enforce decoupling because Mm -hmm. you have to have it decoupled for your test code to work. Uh, I find that writing tests after the fact are very difficult and that I'm usually happier with the code if I write the test first. That being said, I sometimes fail at it, especially if I'm on a project that has very few tests and is already Mm -hmm. tightly coupled. It gets really hard to put these things in there uh mm-hmm. I, but i do it where i can i think that that's an important aspect but you know not the only reason like i said all of them are the reason but sure regression regression
1: like protection like to, to in order to stop regressions from happening
0: i don't want to say it's not important but i borderline want to say a one
1: that's fine you man, um, you can just, you can be honest this, this is fine <laughs> I'm here for you. I'm here to listen to, to whatever you have to say. No judgment. I haven't even told you what I think yet. Yeah. So. We're going to
0: go through that for you, too. No, no. It's all good. <laughs> the, I forgot what we were talking about. A one. Regressions. Um, protect, regressions. You said one. Yeah. And, and the reason why is not because I don't think that they're important. I would like to say a th- two or three, but there are so many bad tests out there that aren't mm-hmm. really doing you any good and don't really catch regressions outside of a tiny window. And I think property testing helps that if you're going to do property testing. Mm-hmm. But property testing, I also have a tendency to do after. Mm-hmm. Do a few other tests, example tests, kind of see where I'm going and then do it. Now, I have I've done property testing first too, which worked out pretty well. But not always. Sometimes that's that's really difficult to do property testing first because you get these weird failures. Right. And it doesn't fail the same way and it can be can be pretty rough. I think property testing is better for regressions than example testing. And
1: Right. I, I would agree with that. Property testing is to me, the, the reason you property test is if you want to actually harden a piece of code and ensure some semblance of correctness mm-hmm. for code that needs it to be correct. For code that actually is important enough to to validate its correctness, property testing is the right way to do that because it will. It's a lot closer to something like a formal method, right? It's it's a it's a it's sort of the um, the uh, the non-academics way of of trying to do formal methods. It's like, all right, we're gonna prove that this works through some amount of uh, stochastic random generation of values, and, that, and that's gonna be close enough to sort of be our mathematical proof of this.
0: So, so I'm going to say one sub three for regression. Okay. Three is the level of importance that I think it should have. And one is what I see it as being useful for out in the real world.
1: Well, so that's, that's to me, the most interesting piece of this, which is that whenever you write tests, you're doing two things, uh, two very obvious things. And they're two very, very obvious costs. that I don't feel like we talk about enough. Number one is you're asking the computer to give up, not give up, but to, but to, to do something computationally for you for some n- amount of time. Mm-hmm. And that amount of time, there's like some tolerance that we all have about the amount of time that we're willing to, to let things spin effectively and come up with values or whatever and come up with the correct values. And, and in some cases, you know, if you're writing a database, if you're building a database and you've made a guarantee that you're never going to lose anybody's data, then maybe running uh, some sort of property check uh, a quick check model, uh, property test model on it for a week, literally a week <laughs> is a good investment of time. Right? right. Like I think Basho did
0: that at one point, like they would let it they would let stuff soak for four days if, if you're making a car that drives by itself. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe spend that time. That's fine. I. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just. I'm trying to up the stakes a little bit. Killing people seems like a pretty. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's. You can either
1: do that or you can mine Bitcoin. Either way, like. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like if you. You have to choose how you feel about all that. But but you're at, but you are you are incurring some costs there. And depending on how you've structured your deployment, depending on how you structured your releases, depending on how you structured your team, that costs. Everyone's going to have different tolerances for that cost. I mean, if you're building like yet another web app, that's, you know, just another, a a better UI around what otherwise would be an Excel spreadsheet. Maybe you don't need to let that thing spin for a couple of days. Maybe you can just like windmill slam that into production, five minutes, test run time and just be good with it. But it is a cost. It's a real thing. And I think it's directly proportional. The amount you're willing to pay is directly proportional to the, to the cost of failure. Mm hmm and everyone's going to have different tolerances for that. So it's funny whenever I bring this up only because people often talk about like, oh, the test runs take so long. And it's like, well, I don't really care. Did it ensure correctness? I would. I, I don't I have i don't know. I will never sacrifice test correctness on the altar of test speed. <laughs> right. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of people who I feel like are very willing to do that, which is very interesting to me. but. But this, and that's why I think this gets into the discussion about why do you test? Like, why do people write tests? And I think by and large, if people are testing for, for correctness. Then, well, maybe it's okay if your test runs a little bit longer. The other aspect of this is the design aspect.
0: I thought that was our first one.
1: Well, no, no. So uh, it is our first one, but this is the other cost to me. Oh, oh okay is that you'd made the point, I think it's a correct point, which is that if you write tests first and you're lazy and you don't work too hard, you will naturally force yourself to decouple things because you'll be like, wow, I'm I'm creating 10 different models in a database just to test this one function. This is really a lot like what's going on here. And then you'll figure out how to decouple that. And, you know, you just listen to that laziness and you'll naturally sort of like good design will fall out of that. I think anecdotally that's been true for me you know, I've seen that be true for other people. I don't know that that's a
0: hard and fast rule that that would be true for everyone. Oh, oh no, it's not. <laughs> I just saw the <laughs> other day uh, someone else's test suite. They um, had their pull request denied, first of all, because they had 14 lines of setup that was exactly the same in every single f- test function. And they pulled it out to a, an internal function to that test file and everybody complained at them. So that goes back to that refactoring and your test thing. But their thing was they they didn't feel that pain because they just copied and pasted it. Right. Which is lazy, right? Like we want to be to a point, but... Maybe applied incorrectly. Yeah, it was ultimate laziness. (laughs) That's because they didn't have to change that setup at any point in time yet. (laughs) Because then they'll be angry. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, so, but part of this, part of the cost to me is that every it hmm, let me start over. Uh, I'm starting over a lot today. Yeah I think I think that's the title of today. <laughs> Hang on cut this out. yeah so <laughs> it seems to me like every best practice we have just about and you know all these best practices around tests, I mean we literally have an entire branch of, of like, a entire philosophy and it probably has some sort of manifesto around TDD. The main goal of it seems to be to force the coupling to happen. To force, to, to force simpler systems to happen. But a key thing to keep in mind is that every test you write is a piece of coupling to your code. Every test you write is one more reason that, that things can't change, that you won't be able to extend your system, that extending your system becomes hard and takes more time and takes more energy and all these sorts of things because now you have uh, all these tests that directly couple to your implementation. And don't give me that crap about, oh, well, if you only ever test the external interface and then never test the internal stuff, then the the external interface never changes in your code and your tests stay the same because anyone who tells you that does not write tests (laughs) for a production code base. That's not how that works. That's not real that's not <laughs> that's not a real thing or they're way smarter than I am one of the two well, no or they just or or they're academics you know what I mean they're like code craftsmen who are are more concerned about like how they type the keys than the than the letters they're actually typing and I just don't buy that as a real as a real thing like I don't buy that as I I want to believe in that but I haven't seen it to be true the important bit there is that like you are creating coupling you are doing that now again, that might be fine. You, there is a cost there that you're probably willing to pay, and in some cases, I think it's arguable that that you do want to create that coupling because it helps to enforce your contracts. Like if you if you don't have types, you know, if you don't have this ability, or you don't have something like we have in Elixir, which is to to let things crash or to have guard clauses. Like you you know, if you don't have some mechanism by which to 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 sort of save yourself um, from in, from bad data getting into the system then you might need those tests. You might need that sort of contract in place to help you enforce the values that you're willing to accept and and and, and uh, process. And that is where I think property testing is really useful because you can specify a whole range of very interesting values and make sure that your stuff still works for them. Now that said, I just think it's important to keep that in mind that there is a cost associated there. Mm -hmm. And the question I would have to you is if what you're trying to get out of testing is design and to some degree you think regression is important, but not, you know, maybe the most important thing, why don't you just delete your tests after you've done writing them?
0: Oh, no, I think it is. I just think the (laughs) use, the regression usefulness of most tests that I see is a one, (laughs) I see. (laughs) (laughs) Is there any chance that this is a local,
1: like a local maximum, like or a local minimum, uh, not necessarily a global minimum?
0: (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) No, and and I'm going to go back to the TDD thing. This this regression stuff. Mm -hmm. I actually see it as less useful when people are testing after they wrote it, because it seems like they there's often less tests or the Mm -hmm. tests are more brittle because they're just testing the code that they wrote. They look at the code they wrote, and they're like, okay, here's how I need to make it pass. Right. And I think that's where the regression ends up as a a one. So that's why I said one sub three earlier, As I was saying, like, it's a In the real world, what I've seen on most projects, not all, was that regression was borderline a one. Right. I mean, ideally, actually it's a three and the reason i never saw it as being well the reason you should never see it. If, it if it's working for regression because it should be fixed on the developer's machine before it gets to a pull request mm-hmm. it, if it's actually working for regression or on the build system it should never get merged into master because the build should fail
1: Right, well, in a, theoret- in, a, in a theoretical sense, right? Uh, if you're talking about purely regressions, but I mean, what's the, you know what the one commonality between all bugs found in production are? They pass the type checker and they pass the test suite. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I <clears throat> I tend to think that as much as I like using tests and using certain things like that to help inform design, I'm not sold on it as a universal. I've seen plenty of people who don't do that, who are really good at designing software. And yep. so I just don't, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. I think it's a useful tool if that's the tool you want to put in your toolbox. I'm I'm pretty in the camp of like, I write a lot of stuff and then I tra- either transform it into properties if I care about it being correct, or I delete the test because it's just not useful to me anymore after it, after, you know, being, after it's done as a design tool, it's like, well, now it's just getting in the way of me being able to extend and change my system and and grow my system as new features come in, I don't need to do
0: that anymore. I don't know if we can be friends. <laughs> I that's fine. I'm pretty I'm pretty hard and fast in the opposite camp. I mean, actually, I'm I'm pretty into like having tests and TDD pretty heavily.
1: I, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that that's that you shouldn't do that or that's the right thing for but you to do or the right thing to them. for your team but that's fine you don't have to delete them i'm saying that for me for me and the kind of work and this i mean this is a little bit getting back to the kind the 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 types thing right like the problems that i am concerned with solving are such that they're not the reason that i write tests like that you know what i mean to me the most useful things are the things that stop bugs and that means it's typically integration tests Because the integrations tests are actually testing the real system in real world conditions. And that's where I find the most value. But that's the kind of problems that I'm solving. Right. By and large, like those are the kinds of things that I'm focusing on. And I, I think it's important whenever these debates happen, there's a lack of the context that's 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 added to the conversation about like, well, what's the actual problem you're trying to solve and why and like, what is the actual thing you need to achieve? Are you building a web app or are you building infrastructure tooling? Are you building a database? Are you building whatever? And I feel like there's a lack of nuance that's talked about when it comes to, to this kind of stuff because no one talks about the real world costs of it and they don't talk about what they're willing to pay. You know, no one has a budget for this stuff. Right. No one has, no one, no one, you know, there's there's plenty of people who will tell you how to do TDD and how to do TDD well and that kind of stuff. What's that one guy's name? Kent Beck. No 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 no. <laughs> Never mind. I'm gonna let I'm just that joke go. Let, I'm, just, I'm just letting that I'm just letting <laughs> that joke that, that joke that joke pass. But uh, but there's no financial advisor for your budget for this kind of stuff. And people talk about techniques without talking about like where they're most applicable or what kind of problems they're really solving. And you know
0: how you weigh all this stuff. Yeah, that's a hard problem and, and has a lot of, I think, opinion. Sit down and do some science and figure it out pretty simply with some experiments or something, it'd be done. Right,
1: <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it turns out running the only papers, the papers that we tend to have are either from industry, which are already pretty biased, or they're some is like testing this on his grad students. And it's it's like all five grad students or whatever, you know, it's like, that's not really a great sample size, but whatever.
0: Yeah. I was talking to a researcher a few years ago at a, a Lambda Lounge event. And he was saying that that's the hardest thing about researching computer science. He's researching languages and... Basically, like what can make people the most effective, be able to write code quickly and correctly, or even comprehend it too. So he shows them all different types of code. And, and he said, the hard thing is you don't get to test on seasoned professionals because you can't afford to pay a seasoned professional to sit there for eight hours and do this. <laughs> so you have comp size college students and non comp like college students. <laughs> right. You show this <laughs> stuff to you. Uh, because, because no, no professional is going to come in and take the time to do it. At least not enough to, to be statistically significant.
1: Right. Yeah. Not in a way that's valid, like for your research.
0: Right. Well, I've got a lot of stuff to get to today.
1: Yeah. We're running long. So, and I think we've, I think we've, we've really, uh, we've hit the high points here.
0: Yeah. So we, we did testing dialyzer kid stuff kids stuff we've been all broken, over the arms. Place today. broken yeah, arms it's good
1: yeah it's good Anna will be back next week and she'll keep us on on track
0: as she does <laughs> two new elixir friends new ish elixir friends mm-hmm that we're just gonna keep that secret Who that is Surprise. that's a teaser right there that's right that's some pro sh- that's some pro shit yeah <laughs> deep tease <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right man all right take it easy All right, later. Mm -hmm. I'll see you later. Bye.